1: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Do you pay attention to draft grades that are handed out after process ends?
0: Hell yeah.
1: I love reading it on Monday. I love reading about it. And then I, I, this is what I do. I put it in a little drawer right here and I close it. And I remind myself, four years later, that nobody knows anything the day after the draft, man. Where people are, are chosen, the schemes they're chosen, the culture they're chosen into, it all affects their ability to be successful. And so uh, for anyone, for us, for anyone to sit there and say they know what's going to
3: happen, there's no way.
1: Howie Roseman, Eagles GM, on one of my favorite topics, the irrelevance of draft grades. We went on to talk about that more. You can see the full interview at the PFTPM podcast. But uh, look, nobody knows. That's the thing. And that's the thing you never hear during the draft, Peter, especially round one. We hear all the superlatives about every pick. The reality is half these guys aren't going to make it. We just don't know which half. So we don't go down that path because that quickly leads to questions we can't answer because nobody knows. And if anybody knew, those guys wouldn't be first-round picks.
3: You know, draft grades are the biggest uh, abomination uh, (laughs) in modern journalism. (laughs) It's just draft grades... Are so pathetic, so ridiculous, such a grotesque example of clickbait to the max. And uh, you know, look, we can all uh, point to somebody uh, who, for who, three years ago said that, "Oh my God, Patrick Mahomes stinks! What a dumb pick!" And not only, oh, what? Not only did the Chiefs pick him, they traded a one to get him. What a bunch of idiots! I mean, you know it. Look, I mean, if if the smartest general managers in football, if if Ron Wolf and and Bobby Beathard and and Bill Polian in their primes sat down the day after uh, the draft and they graded everybody in the league, I can guarantee you, three years after they issued their grades, I would say Bobby Beathard, what a buffoon. He gave his team <laughs> an A. These guys all stink. Ron Wolf, what an idiot! He gave them a D, and now they got three guys going to the Hall of Fame. I I hate it. I despise it. When I edited the MMQB at Sports Illustrated, we I, I just said, you know, we, you, you'll have to run me over with a truck before we do letter grades for everybody on the draft. It's just, it's not smart. It's not good. It doesn't help anybody it's simply to say to all the fans in the world hey come here and i'll tell you how your team did in the draft i mean it's it's ludicrous
2: well, listen I, I don't disagree with anything i mean yeah howie rosen's right yeah we're it's about you know the, the, of course teams know how they're you know some of these players are going to fit into their systems they have a plan for them other guys they're taking a shot on because oh, we see some potential here in this one area of his game where we think he might be special. So it is a crapshoot to a degree, to a degree. I mean, it's not like a total like, well, we don't know what's going to happen or the same teams wouldn't keep dominating football that we've talked about the last two days, Mike. So there's obviously some plan of attack, but yes, you're never going to know until a human being, you get to know him and what he's made of and see him on a you know seven-day-a-week He's in the job. This is what makes this guy good or bad. And then his skill set in person and how does it exactly fit our system? So, yes, we don't know. But the really good teams have a little bit better feel than the rest of football where they have a plan of attack. They know what they're drafting and they know at least, you know, uh, philosophical wise, you like that, that uh, this player fits in with their scheme.
1: (laughs) repetition does not make it right but i know that uh, sometimes sometimes repetition makes us numb to it which we've seen in other contexts recently anyway i put it out to a vote on the pft twitter account over the weekend because i was getting into it with the draft grade mafia which was very offended by the suggestion that this exercise of laboring over the various picks and attaching letter grades to every team wasn't a complete and total waste of time. Well, 31,404 voted, 77.8% agree with us. It is a waste of time because the draft is a complete and total crapshoot. And the prospect of applying a grade, of exercising judgment against the people who are the experts At scouting, evaluating, and picking players, all of us on the outside don't know what the hell they're doing, why they're doing it. We don't understand the philosophy. We don't understand what they're looking for. And if we did, a lot of us who would be applying letter grades would actually be the ones making the picks. All right, let's move on to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, a team with which Peter King was embedded on Thursday night for the first round of the draft virtually. Let's begin with something that the NFL finally addressed yesterday because... Here's what happens. Let me peel back the curtain just a little bit, guys. I will ask the NFL questions all the time, and they will answer me quickly 80% of the time. The other 20% they don't want to answer, and the other 20% they wish I would just go away. I think generally they wish I would go away, but that's a a different story altogether. But so they just don't respond. So I move on with my life and I work and we got the show and we got interviews and we got this. And like a few days later, somebody will say to me, hey, did you ever get an answer to that question? It's like, well, I forgot all about it. So then I have to ask it again. And I raise that now because I asked last week when the news came out that Tom Brady had accidentally wandered into someone's house in Tampa when he was supposed to be meeting with Byron Leftwich. What gives? You're not supposed to be meeting with assistant coaches prior to the start of the offseason program. Brady supposedly walked into this guy's house, dropped a couple of duffel bags onto the floor, which likely included footballs. And uh, when I asked the NFL about it last week, they said nothing. I asked about it again yesterday. They issued a statement that they looked into it. No violation of any kind committed by Tom Brady or the Buccaneers in meeting with Byron Leftwich because all he was doing was picking up a playbook, something they could put on a tablet and send to his house. He had to go pick it up directly from Byron Leftwich that's their story. They stuck to it and the NFL bought it. And if you if you can't tell, I'm being sarcastic because I think there's a hell of a lot more here that they don't want to delve into because they don't want to disrupt the happy vibe in Tampa Bay uh, that uh, accompanies the arrival of Tom Brady, Peter.
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, by the absolute letter of the law, that such a meeting shouldn't happen. And I don't know what happened in terms of you know, what each party said. I'm sure the NFL called uh, either Leftwich or Brady or Arians and found out, you know, the the gist of all this. Mike, I mean, to me, this is one of those stories that um, I think, I'm not saying it's complicated, but I'm also making the point that you could probably also argue that in the 10 or 12 one-hour Zoom chats that uh, that the coach of the Cincinnati Bengals, Zach Taylor, had with Joe Burrow, that they weren't just asking about his background and his hobbies and everything. They're getting stuff done about the Cincinnati Bengals' offense. So I've always thought that once April rolls around uh, and and a guy is property of a new team or whatever... I've always thought that that is exactly like the legal tampering period. More happens than should happen in that legal tampering period. And if they would have uh, sanctioned uh, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, in in my opinion, and I'm not, if they had sanctioned the Tampa Bay Buccaneers for this, I think they could have easily opened up a case on every one of the other 31 teams and found something quite similar. Um, I'm not saying everyone, but, but, and I shouldn't say everyone, but a lot of them, they would have found something similar.
2: Well, like, uh, yeah, okay, so I don't buy it. Like, I'm throwing the Al Riveron challenge flag, okay? I mean, you know, again, uh, Mike, you made the points. Uh, yeah, they could have just, hey, Tom, download this on your iPad, here's our playbook, bam, you know, the duffel bags, I think they were footballs. That would be my assessment, just being an ex-quarterback and being that way, where I would think he might have gone to Byron Leftwich's house, and maybe they were going to have a little bit of a walkthrough and do go through some of the mechanics at the line of scrimmage or even lightly drop back, and he throws a ball to Byron Leftwich, which is a play that's going to be instilled in the offense. My big thing is this. Like... It's a stupid rule. Like, NFL, get the hell out of <laughs> here with so these rules. rules. How are you going to tell a 43-year-old man how hard he can work and how great he wants to be? I mean, this is Tom freaking Brady. Would you think he was going to go down there and just sip pina coladas and be like, oh, I'll learn the offense at some point, guys. This is great. What a great Sunday I got. No, he wants to be great. He wants to win a Super Bowl and shove it in everybody's face this year. Get rid of these stupid rules, NFL. I broke them every year I played. I would break them every time now. You're not going to tell me when I'm going to learn more football and get better as a player. Like, shut up with that crap.
1: First of all, remind me to never drink piña coladas with you. I don't know what your piña colada consumption style is, but I think piña colada ends up getting everywhere when you plug it like that. <laughs> wah, 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 wah. And th- this is this is one of the fundamental problems I have with the NFL. And this is the way the NFL finds a way to trip over its own shoelaces constantly. They set up these rules that don't reflect reality. And so you have these rules that you can't enforce because when you do enforce them, you look stupid. Like when they whacked the Chiefs a few years ago for talking directly to Jeremy Macklin during the legal tampering window when they can only talk to his agent. They're not supposed to talk to the player. Oh, you talk to the player, you have to give up a third-round pick and $500,000 in fines. It's ridiculous because everybody does it. Bounty Gate, everybody was doing something similar to what the Saints allegedly were doing. The list goes on and on and on of instances where the NFL reaches in like the claw and just grabs one team and makes an example out of them for breaking a rule that everybody breaks and that otherwise isn't enforced. So I'm with you, Chris. I hate to say it. I hate to agree with you on anything, but just get rid of these stupid rules or make the rules better reflect reality. Because then you have to look the other way when you catch someone red-handed. That's the problem. They caught the Bucks red-handed. And Chris, and Chris and I have been hearing all the rumors about all the stuff that's going on down in Tampa to get hashtag Tommy ready for the season. And this may just be scratching the surface when he accidentally walks into someone else's house and he was going to meet with Byron Leftwich. But, but just if you're not going to enforce the rules, then get rid of them. All right, another important point as it relates to the Buccaneers, Peter. And this came up over the weekend. Sean Payton inadvertently during the draft-a-thon gave Chris and I a topic that we milked uh, until the utter was dry yesterday. Sean Payton's belief that at any given time there are only 10 or 11 relevant teams in the NFL. The others just simply don't have a realistic shot at winning the Super Bowl. The 10 or 11 relevant teams are the ones you have to worry about when they're on your calendar. Does the Presence of Tom Brady with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And we can throw Gronk on top of that too now, but mainly Brady. Does that take the Buccaneers and move them from the category of irrelevant team to relevant team? Peter, your thoughts.
3: Absolutely, unequivocally, yes. And it's relevant both in terms of marketing and fandom and all that, and also on the field. We've talked about this before on this show, Mike and that is that the Tampa Bay Buccaneers last December were on a four-game winning streak and had two home games left against Houston and Atlanta. I would argue that absolutely unequivocally, they should have finished 9-7. and Jameis Winston lost two nail-biters by throwing six interceptions, including a walk-off pick on the first play of overtime uh, to lose the game to the Atlanta Falcons. So I would argue that this was already with the most mistake-prone quarterback of modern times, this was already a nine-win team. And so uh, to think that Tom Brady can't get him to 10 or 11 with the addition of Rob Gronkowski, whatever they get from him, with a young and growing defense, uh, I, I mean, how can they not be one of the most relevant teams in football?
2: well, yeah, I I mean I listen, I, I agree with that. They're they're in that conversation. You know, again, now do I put them in there and where I go, you know, organizational wise, okay, are they on the same platform as the Chiefs, the Ravens, the Patriots, the Packers, the Eagles on a year to year basis? No. I don't think they've proven to us yet. And I think I still think that's what Sean Payton was talking about was more on the big scope, big picture of things. There's 10 teams that he's worried about being able to build a credible winner year after year and being able to sustain consistently being relevant in the NFL. And Tampa, I'm not going to put them in that class. But when you just talk about the 10 or 11 relevant teams to the particular year, yes, they're definitely in it this year. I mean, to Peter's point, this is a team I think a lot of people put a little mark next to last year to go, ooh, watch out for the Bucks next year. And then when you make some of the additions they have in free agency and a Tom Brady to what bo- both of you are saying, I mean, this is going to raise the level of the whole organization. You know, again, we're seeing what Tom Brady's work ethic is about. We just talked about it. He's willing to break rules and do whatever the hell he wants to do to get to become a better fly- player and to make that team better. And I'm all for that. So keep breaking those damn rules, Tom. The hell with all that crap. And uh, yes, I think they are very relevant this year, and and I think going to be in the mix very much so when it comes playoff time.
1: This is a very rare occasion, though, for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers to have a quarterback who's a short-timer, a head coach who's clearly a short-timer. They all kind of come together for this brief moment, one year, two years, three at the absolute maximum. And then on the horizon, major changes for the Buccaneers organization – coming. But hey, it's better than what they've been pretty much every year since 2002 when they won the Super Bowl. So they'll take it. It'll fill the stadium. Once we're allowed to have fans in the stadium, it'll sell jerseys, it'll win games, and it makes the Tampa Bay Buccaneers for now extremely relevant. And look, with every NFL season being a one year at a time proposition, you know, yeah, you'd rather be a team that contends each and every year, but when you don't contend each and every year, if it falls into your lap for one year, you take it. It's kind of like, it's, it's not entirely the same, but it's similar to what the Vikings had with Brett Favre for a season. Um, right. The idea that, 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 that hey, we're not going to say no to the opportunity to join forces, Peter, with an all-time great quarterback and see where it takes us. And we'll worry about tomorrow when tomorrow comes.
3: How great would it be if Tampa Bay Buccaneers head coach Byron Leftwich right before the 2023 draft that he and uh, general manager Jason Light trade a two and a four to Green Bay for 39-year-old quarterback
1: Aaron <laughs> How great would that be?
3: That's, that would be amazing. I like it.
1: I like it. Just, just time it out over the next 15 or 20 years catch every great quarterback on the tail end of his career for a couple of seasons and then just move on (laughs) to the next one. I kind of like it. We need to move on. Uh, The NFL had said on multiple occasions that the 2020 regular season schedule will be released by May 9. That could now change. We'll be discussing that when PFT Live continues right after this. surprising story from sports business daily that came out yesterday afternoon the nfl has insisted that the regular season schedule which usually is issued before the draft would be out no later than saturday may 9 the networks were bracing for it to land on thursday may the 7 now that the draft is over which consumes so much focus from the front office from the commissioner, et cetera. Now that the draft is done, the commissioner's giving it a fresh look, guys, because there are factions in the league office and also people within the ticket industry, specifically the resellers, who are saying, hang on a second. We can't schedule these games. Because once we start selling and reselling tickets, we put ourselves into a potential mess if there aren't fans and we don't know when games are going to be able to be played. And maybe we just need a few more weeks to have a better understanding of where everything is going to be come September. So all of a sudden, there's a debate and there's a delay and there's a possibility that we will not have a schedule by May 9. That is now up in the air. But you know, for a league that has managed to avoid significant, tangible, negative impacts of the coronavirus pandemic, this one could be the biggest one. Yeah, the offseason programs aren't going to happen, but okay. But but this, delaying the schedule deeper into May and who knows how long after that, that really, to me, is a sign that this situation has gotten the NFL's attention, Peter, and maybe they want to do some more planning for contingencies before they actually pull the
3: sheet off of the schedule. Well, Mike, I'm I'm fairly convinced, and I've hinted at this in my column, but I'm fairly convinced now that the NFL uh is not only making contingency schedules if they have to play twelve games, fourteen games, you know, because you know, as I as I've said, the NFL could play a twelve game schedule with no buys and start on October eighteenth and keep the schedule exactly on course as to what it was but i believe the nfl is doing something else i believe that they are also creating a schedule that w- that could start later that could start let's say four weeks later and then could push the super bowl three or four weeks later depending on wh- if they have a buy and all that and i think that's the one thing we should be focused on the fact that if the NFL is determined to play a sixteen game schedule, there's no reason why they can't play the Super Bowl at the end of February instead of at the beginning of February.
2: Yeah, it's very interesting. You know, first off, I don't know how you you know, I agree. I mean, with the NFL here, you, you gotta delay the schedule release. You you can't set out anything concrete right now as the end of April. You know, again, there's just too much unknown in our world right now and what's going on with this virus and where it's going to go. And all those other issues have to be ironed out before I think you can start worrying about, you know, the particular details of an NFL schedule. And, you know, I can't imagine. It seems like we're going to have to get through the month of May at least here to have a little bit better picture of which way our culture and civilization just in general is going to go here throughout the summer into the early fall. So, uh, you know, again, I, I know and, you know, I know, Mike, we've been privy to information. And of course, Peter is, too, because Peter knows everybody. But the NFL is coming up with a lot of different contingency plans. And I'll go again to the to, you know, something I've been saying. I just don't think, you know, and the evidence again this weekend, I don't think as many NFL people are as concerned with this virus as the rest of the world. We just saw football players I know want to just play football. They don't care. And I understand that. I said that to Mike before. If I was 26 years old, uh, back in my prime, I'd have been sitting there going, oh, well, I'm not worried about this COVID-19. I just want to play football. I'll stay away from my mom and my dad and my grandma and grandpa so I won't get them sick or do anything like that. But I want to play football. And I think there is an overwhelming calling for that throughout the NFL, even with coaches in the front office. You know, so I'm just interested to see where it goes, but I totally understand them delaying the schedule release with the, the unknowns of the world right now.
1: The key is coming up with a clear strategy for who gets tested, how often they get tested, where they go when the workday ends, where they can potentially be exposed right. or exposed for the first time and then test them again. The testing is going to be the key. And this is a point that DeMora Smith, the NFLPA executive director, makes very, very astutely. And I think so far it has been overlooked by fans and by the media. The idea, and this was uh, mentioned by Dr. Anthony Fauci in comments to the New York Times, without widespread testing, it's not going to work. And you can't have sports hog all the testing right now we continue to be, and this is one of the things that is the most bo- mind-boggling to me about the entire
2: pandemic. Mind-boggling. We continue
1: to not have enough tests. So how can you, Peter, how can you have all of the testing that the NFL would need of all the players, all the coaches, all the trainers, anybody who walks into that Petri dish that is a locker room, how can you have testing for them as often as you need it when the general public doesn't have access to it? That is, to me, the biggest impediment to getting the football season on track. And until they solve that... It's going to be hard to implement any of these plans.
3: I've been saying exactly that for the last week or 10 days. The only way the NFL can play the games, the only way that that uh, the NFLPA will allow the membership to play games is if they do enough testing so that they know whether every person who sets foot on a field, whether there are fans there or not, every person who sets foot on a field, medical people, players, coaches, staff, whatever it takes. And Mike, let's just say that there are uh, you know, 200 people in an organization that would be necessary to the functioning of an organization to play a game. Let's just, I'm inventing that. I don't know what it is. It might be 150, but let's just say it's 200. You're going to have to test those people at least twice a week, okay? And you're going to have to get the test back same day, obviously. So if you're testing those guys and doing it every week, then that means that each team in the NFL is taking up uh, 400 tests per week on average, okay? And then if you multiply that times 32 teams, basically, then what you're getting is a monstrous number of tests And the NFL is going to have to answer to the people who say, hey, wait a second. States can't get enough tests. We can't get enough tests. These people can't get enough tests. And the only way the NFL will be able to do it, Mike, I believe, is if Donald Trump or whoever is going to be in charge of this, Anthony Fauci, says, okay, we give you special dispensation, all right, to go out independently and purchase from some lab in China, whatever it is, uh, 50,000 tests to use during the season so that every NFL team will be able to play games. And I don't know, 50 or 100,000. That is the only way it can happen. And if they can't get that dispensation, I don't know what the NFL is going to do.
1: Yeah, and D. Smith is the only one within the NFL bubble that has articulated that thought. And it could be that others have not because they don't like where that trail of logic ultimately leads because it is going to take something Herculean like that, and there's still going to be a glaring disparity between the NFL and the rest of the public that desperately needs the testing as well. All right, on a happier note, Peter King spoke with Bengals coach Zach Taylor yesterday, and Zach Taylor said something very interesting about rookie Joe Burrow, the first overall pick in the draft. We'll hear that next
3: on PFT Live. A coach doesn't have to call a game for Joe Burrow as a coach. Did you ever notice that?
0: I think sometimes just, just, I know when I was a player, I wasn't good enough to play in the NFL. It's always resonated with me. I didn't like throwing a, a quick throw that didn't get me into a rhythm. I need to, to really let my arm go a little bit. And so um, it's fascinating for you to pick up on that. You know, some, some quarterbacks need need one of those throws where complete or incomplete. They're pushing the ball down the field and, um, they feel like they're really using their, 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 uh, their upper body a little bit and, and just kind of getting into the throw early instead of just guiding those little flare outs in the backfield and some of that kind of stuff. So everybody's different. Maybe, maybe that was different for me, but I feel like Joe's probably the same way. You know, he wants to actually make a difficult throw early in that game instead of just guiding the ball and trying to start three for three. Yeah. What
3: mentally about Joe Burrow attracted you to him?
0: He's got, an. I've said this, he's got an earned confidence.
1: Yeah, you know, it's amazing. I spoke to Joe Burrow last week and Peter, I I asked him kind of a very simple, like, you know, does part of you kind of wish you weren't going to be the number one overall pick that you'd come into the NFL with lower expectations, you could develop off radar, you're not carrying around this weight and this burden. He said, no. This is what you want. This is what I mean. And it just oozes that confidence that Zach Taylor's talking about. And when a guy's got it, he's got it. And everyone notices it. I noticed
3: it. They've noticed it. You've noticed it. And I think it bodes well for the Bengals. You know, at LSU, what really interested me, especially when Joe Brady came on to sort of honcho the passing game. And Chris, I definitely want to hear your thoughts about this because I was so impressed. The biggest game of Joe Burrow's life, I remember thinking, watching the game, his first three passes went like 22, 34, and 20 yards downfield. And a lot of coaches say, hey, let's get the guy some confidence early. Joe Burrow is not like that. And he told me flat out, we did not play that way at LSU. And I'm glad we didn't.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. Listen, I think, you know, Zach Taylor made a lot of good points. You know, and there is something to coming out and getting some completions and feeling like, oh, okay, here, I'm in a good rhythm. It's like a basketball player seeing the ball go through the net a few times. You go, oh, I'm hot, here we go, even if they were three foot jump shots. So I do think there is uh, some certain positives about that and maybe finding short completions. Now, at the same time, okay, you don't want to be so uh, boxed into that corner to where game after game after game, you start to start games off with short completions, and all of a sudden you start to realize, man, I'm throwing you know some balls into some really tight windows just to get three- and four-yard gains. That's dangerous too. So there is a little balance here. And I think for a quarterback, what the main thing is, you don't care if it's a short throw or a long throw as long as you feel like, hey, coach, can you dial up a play where there's going to be some separation to where I can see a guy, I don't care if he's 25 yards down the field or five yards down the field, Is he just going to be open to where I'm going to be able to make a nice, normal, rhythmic type throw and, you know, not have to make the most perfect throw to start a football game. It's one of the things I love about Joe Burrow, Peter, you know, he is very aggressive mindset at all times. And he's certainly not gun shy. And when he flips the field, he is not looking for three and four yard completions. He is looking to strike down the field uh, to one of his receivers and, yes, there's a, there's a balance of that. I know in Tampa with John Gruden, we got into early in the game sometimes so many three-step drops and quick throws that teams played for it. And then teams started pa- stopped pass rushing because they st- started to say, well, Gruden and Chris Sims, they're just going to throw a three-step drop, ba- drop back pass. We're not going to ever get there anyway, so let's just put our hands up. And I was throwing balls and getting them batted down and trying to make sidearm throws for three-yard gains, and I was like, woo. You know, and there is something when you start to do that too much to where you start to go, hey, we got to back them off a little bit here and give our offense a chance by doing something aggressive. And, you know, you're not going to have any of those issues with Joe Burrow. He ain't afraid to come out firing.
1: And see, I think that's the key point. You ultimately want the defense every given week to have no idea
2: how you're going to come out. And to have to
1: defend against everything. And maybe some weeks it's better to take the three-yard that's there because they're ready for the aggressive down-the-field throw. But but I think when you have that that wide-open uh, selection, then, then you avoid a situation where they know, oh, they're just going to come out and throw the ball down the field or they're going to throw it short or they're going to throw it intermediate or whatever it is you don't want to be predictable. All right, let's take a break. We are going to draft when we return our most intriguing picks from the 2020 NFL Draft. We'll do that right after this on PFT Live.
0: Unknown hey, Josh. Participant it's Rick is now
2: joining. For the Minnesota Vikings. Can you hear me? Josh. Unknown participant is now exiting.
0: You'd think after twenty of these picks, you could figure this out, Rick.
1: What are you talking about?
0: Just wait till the little computer says he's in the room, and then. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: Mike Zimmer, Vikings coach, giving Gene Rick a little bit of the business via Zoom. That's kind of Zimmer's way. Uh, Zimmer, that great stone fireplace cannot hide money. I love that thing. And I don't know how warm or cold it was in Kentucky, but even if it was 85 degrees, you got to have a fire raging in that fireplace, which he did. All right. The most <laughs> intriguing draft picks for 2020, three-man weave. That means we got to have nine names ready to go. Peter gets the trivia question. Peter gets the first pick if he gets it right. Peter, since 2000, four NFL teams have not selected a quarterback in the first round of the draft. Four teams have not taken a quarterback in round one. Name two of those teams:
3: New England and uh, uh, uh-huh. New England and San Francisco and new
1: orleans new New
3: orleans the seattle seahawks and the
1: dallas cowboys have not taken a quarterback in round one since 2000 and i trimmed it down from three they wanted you to have to name three of the four are you kidding me it's hard enough to think of one i'm awful at these things
2: anyway
1: it's hard when that when that clock's ticking when that red light's on it's hard to process your thoughts all right chris you got the first pick
2: Okay, like, like full transparency here. I'm sick of talking about Jordan Love. I'm sick of talking about Tua, and I'm sick of talking about Jalen Hurts. I'm not picking them, just so everybody knows. They're not. So you guys can pick them. That's fine. I'm not judging or anything like that. I just know I'm I've been talking. am not
3: picking them either.
2: Good. I've been talking about him for five days. I've had enough, okay? So that's, I'm not picking him. I'm going to go with Isaiah Simmons as one of the most intriguing picks to me in the whole NFL draft. You know, he was one of those guys, the Arizona Cardinals, Uh, uh, picked a what I call and I said this to to Isaiah Simmons when I did an interview I call him a praying mantis with muscles I mean that's what he is out there in the football field he's one of those guys you just you turn on the film and you go whoa who's that guy he looks really cool and different and faster and longer than everybody else and I, I give the Arizona Cardinals a lot of credit here You know, I I think Isaiah Simmons is one of those guys that was way too overanalyzed through this draft process where it's like, whoa, he didn't play one position. I'd like to see him. Listen, put the guy five yards off the ball from the line of scrimmage and let him go run down the ball carrier. It's not complicated. He's a freaky athlete. He's physical. He, of course, can run sideline to sidelines. He can cover that way. He's different than anything we've ever seen really at the linebacker position. This is a special, you know, new breed of the NFL. And I'm intrigued to see how they use him. And of course, how successful he can be on that Arizona defense. All
3: right, Peter, you're up. I'll take J.K. Dobbins, uh, the 55th pick in this draft by the Baltimore Ravens. And I'll take him because so four years ago, Ezekiel Elliott was the fourth pick in the NFL draft. J.K. Dobbins this year, the 55th pick in the NFL draft. In their last years at Ohio State, comparing them, J.K. Dobbins was more productive, had more yards per rush, and had the same number of touchdowns. Better in the passing game than Ezekiel Elliott was. And I keep saying to myself, okay, either the Dallas Cowboys went wild with Zeke, Or the Baltimore Ravens got one of the steals of this draft and many other drafts in J.K. Dobbins. Give me Dobbins.
2: Love that pick, Peter.
3: Yeah, and you know, unlike other teams where a running back
1: comes in as a rookie and it puts the veteran on notice, I think Mark Ingram is going to welcome the presence of J.K. Dobbins, and it's going to extend Mark Ingram's career, and uh, it's going to just diversify that offense even more and just give it another weapon. It's just another weapon for an offense that already was chock full of them. I am going to stay with that same position. And I, this was one of those eyebrow raisers for me in round two. When the Colts took Jonathan Taylor, that one was extremely intriguing for me. We talking pick. about what it means to Marlon Mack, which means Marlon Mack, see you later after this season, a the guy they've sent out the signals they want to keep. I mean, to, you know, Jonathan Taylor, the, the most significant running back the Colts have drafted since Edger and James, really, all, all due respect to. Uh, uh who's the guy Dominic Rhodes that should have been the MVP of Super Bowl 41 but I I think that Jonathan Taylor can be great for the Colts he was great for Wisconsin my only concern is does he have too much wear and tear but uh you know at a time when you're not sure what your quarterback is going to be who it's going to be where you're going to find him beyond this year having a guy like Taylor makes it easier for the quarterback to play because I think he's going to churn up a ton of yards touchdowns etc for the Colts all right Chris you're up Uh
2: yeah, well, I like that pick, Mike. And again, you know, I, you know, we we fall we all fall into this trap, me included, where we just look at the bottom line and the stats of a player, and we go, "Oh, well, he must be good." Marlon Mack ran for a thousand yards; he must have been had a great year. Yeah, it was a good year. It's about what was there to be had, though. And I think if you took like the top five running backs in football and put them on the Indianapolis Colts, it would have been fifteen, sixteen hundred yards rushing. So I think that's why they evaluated that and said, "Man, Jonathan Taylor can get a whole lot out of a little." And we open up a lot of big holes, and imagine what he can do with that. So I like that pick, Mike. I mean, I'm really excited about what he brings. All right, I'm going to go to New England for my second-round pick, and specifically the safety they took out of Lenore Ryan. That's right, Lenore Ryan, which I was – when I first saw film on this guy, I was like, where the hell is Lenore Ryan? And I don't think – I wasn't saying it right either. As we know, me and pronunciation, they're not real good. But 6'1", 217 pounds – ran a four, four, nine, had a 42 inch vertical. You know, he's one of those guys. Again, it's a t- a little bit of a tough evaluation because of the, the talent he is playing at that level of college football. But man, when you talk about a specimen, you know, I, I wrote down Mike, and I know you've heard me say this and Peter, you might, you know, I, I thought this guy has a chance, like his ceiling is Sean Taylor esque type of talent to be that big and explosive and be able to turn his hips and, not only be good at open field tackling, but in coverage. And then Bill Belichick, where we know he values those hybrid linebacker safety type players so much. Uh, I am really excited to see Kyle Duggar and what he can do with the New England Patriots. And if he matches up with what I saw on film and does it translate to the NFL or was I tricked by the lack of competition uh, at that level of college football?
3: My next pick, I'm gonna take a wide receiver for the Denver Broncos, who is not named Jerry Judy. I'm gonna take KJ Hamler, the uh the wide receiver for the Broncos, who they picked number 46 overall. And the reason I'm gonna take him is that he is going to be Denver's Henry Ruggs. And and John Elway, I think he told me something on Friday night after the second and third rounds. He said, you know. When we were studying all the receivers in this draft because we knew we wanted to get speed and we're studying the receiver position and we keep looking at KJ Hamler in that hundred yard kick return he had against Michigan in the 2019 season and he was so much faster than everybody else that I decided hey, let's put our watches on this guy and let's do a 40 with him. And you guys probably remember one of the stories with the draft, K.J. Hamler did not have a 40 time. Right. Didn't work out at the Combine, hadn't run one last year at Penn State. Nobody knew what he was as a 40. And all Elway said, he just runs faster than everybody else. Right. And they did a 40 time in this 100-yard dash and it was 3.93 seconds. And Elway's just laughing and he just says, look, I know it's from a running start, but he ran... 40 yards in 3.93 seconds. And and that plus the fact he's tremendously productive and elusive as well. KJ Hamler is going to be the answer for Denver, they hope, uh, basically to Tyreek Hill.
1: And it's funny that you mention Henry Ruggs in the KJ Hamler comparison because Henry Ruggs is my next one because Henry Ruggs doesn't have Cortland Sutton. He doesn't have... Jerry Judy. He doesn't have Drew Locke. Henry Ruggs is a man on an island with the Raiders, and he's my pick in round two because I keep going back to that graphic of all the guys who ran really fast at the scouting combine at the receiver position for the last 17 years. And and it's a milk carton list. It's guys who did nothing in the NFL. Uh, And we're still waiting to see if John Ross is going to do anything, but it's kind of the kiss of death. And when you don't have help around you, it's all on Henry Ruggs, and he's the first receiver off the board. The pressure, the expectation, the fast 40 time. I'm very intrigued to see what he can do for the Raiders because the deck is stacked against him just by virtue of the circumstances. It says nothing about his talent, just the circumstances are not good for Henry Ruggs heading into the nfl all right let's take a break we got one more round to go in the draft of the most intriguing draft picks from 2020 we'll do that next here on pft live
3: great category
1: All right, we're going to get right to round three of our draft. The most intriguing draft picks in 2020. Chris Sims, you're on the clock, and it's ticking loudly.
2: Man, I'm, I'm stuck. I'm a little torn in between here, all right? I mean, there's two guys. You had the whole guys, break to make up I'm your going... mind. You had a whole commercial okay. break to make up your mind. You know, I wanted to add some flavor here, but I'm going with Chase Claypool, the second-round pick for the Pittsburgh Steelers. All right, that's the guy I, I'm really – I mean, Mike, you know I've been banging the drum for this guy. I think he was one of the more talented guys in the whole draft. I think he deserved to be more in the top receiver conversation. You know, I'm just being in person and seeing Chase Claypool in person the last three years. This is one of the freakiest specimens I've ever seen in my life. I've said it's Brandon Marshall. It's Vincent Jackson, except more explosive. You know, and I just look at that mix with him with the Pittsburgh Steelers. I think he could be the literally go-to guy, number one dangerous weapon for that offense this year. You know, when you're 238 pounds and you ran a 4-4 flat and a a 40-and-a-half-inch vertical, and you got a guy like Big Ben who could throw the deep ball as well as he can, and then, of course, they have other receivers that will take a little attention off of him. And we know Pittsburgh's a master at, you know, drafting wide receivers and having a keen eye uh, eye for for that position. I just look at that and would not be shocked if Chase Claypool wasn't the go-to number one target. You know, Notre Dame, he was open a lot last year. They had some issues on offense that led to him not getting the ball as much as he should have. His stats, I think, would have blown people out of the water if he was hit more when he was wide open down the field. But I'm really fascinated by this guy.
3: So my third pick is another golden domer who catches the ball, and it's Cole Komet. When that pick was first made, number 43 by the Chicago Bears, the first tight end off the board in this draft— I think everybody across America who knows anything about football said, can the Chicago Bears please stop drafting and picking up tight ends? How many do they have? <laughs> and I went and looked uh, and, and at their depth chart. They now have 10. And, and obviously, they're not all going to go to camp or whatever happens during this season. But the reason I really like this pick is that last year, I know, that Matt Nagy was so frustrated at the tight end position because his top three tight ends all ended up going on IR. And he said to himself, this will never happen again as long as I'm a head coach. And so he's overdone it at tight end. But now in getting Cole Komet, in my opinion, you get a separation guy at tight end with great hands and a guy who right away, right now, you put two, he loves two tight end formations, okay? You put Jimmy Graham and Cole Komet out there, even if it's like third and 13, instead of going four wide, I could see you going two and two because he loves how Cole Komet can catch the ball in traffic downfield at six. To me, I think Cole Komet has a really good chance to be an excellent player in the NFL and he's going to the right head coach. All right, we're really
1: pinched on time. I don't have a whole lot of, uh, of opportunity to discuss this one, but kicker Justin Rohrwasser, the fifth-round pick of the New England Patriots with the controversial tattoo on his arm of the three-percenter militia group. I am stunned that that, if it did get through the, uh, the filter... Of Bill Belichick didn't know about it. I'm assuming he knows about it because he knows about everything. That's been kind of a little back end controversy that continues to linger. And it's not like the Patriots don't have experience with players who had controversial tattoos that may or may not have been evidence in a murder trial. Not that it's going to lead that way with Justin Rohrwasser, obviously, but the idea that, that you would even on a kicker. You can find kickers anywhere. The idea that you would roll the dice when you know you have a built-in controversy with this guy, and it's something that's not going to go away. It's going to continue to bubble. It's going to continue to percolate, and we'll see where it goes from here. We got to go. We're going to wrap up this Wednesday edition of PFT Live right after this. It was asked yesterday by SB Nation, what is your favorite jersey that you own? And a certain former NFL quarterback by the name of Phil Sims, with uh, whom some of us may be familiar, said Sims number 11. Well, you asked. Sims number 11? What about Sims number 2? Chris, are you going to stand for that? What's
2: the world coming to? It's just, you know, the narcissist of Phil Sims right there. It's just all about
3: him. All of the, I don't even know
2: if they own a jersey of mine. That's, you know, that's so. Uh, I don't think they have one. I don't know what else to say.
0: <laughs> you never gave them one?
2: <laughs> I, I, I don't know if I've actually, I think my mom has some folded in the closet upstairs. But I have a framed jersey that I have here at the house. But, you know, again... When you don't win a Super Bowl or go 22 or 25, they just don't care about your your career that much. (laughs) Real quick,
1: Peter. Mike,
3: Chris Sims signed his jersey to his father. Dear dad, good (laughs) luck. Love the best quarterback in the family, Chris. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We'll see you tomorrow, buddy. Have a great day.
2: See you guys.